Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, discrimination, employment, and the law. And Richard, we turn this week to the somewhat sensitive topic of employment discrimination and the legal parameters around it. And this is occasioned by a column in the Wall Street Journal that ran this week by a couple of education scholars at the American Enterprise Institute, Rick Hess and Grant Addison, who were writing about the potentially discriminatory ways in which employers filter out applicants by whether or not they have a bachelor's degree. We can talk about that a little bit later, but just to set the ground rules for this, why don't we start with the, the legal framework that we're, we're working with here, the relevant rules about employment discrimination, at least on the federal side, come, as Hessen Addison tell it, from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and a subsequent Supreme Court decision in a case called Griggs v. Duke Power. So explain for us just the basics of what the rules of the road are here as a result of that law and that decision. Well, I think the most accurate way to describe it is there were two sets of rules, the one that was put into place by the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was a subject of very elaborate compromise and negotiation, and then the rather astonishing change that took place between 1965 when the act went into effect and in 1971 when the Griggs decision came down. Uh, the original battle over the Civil Rights Act on titles of employment was very hard fought. Um, uh, one of the most ironic features about it was that Judge Howard Smith in the House of Representatives added sex into race, and some people said he was trying to sabotage the act. Other people said no, um, he's basically trying to cleanse it. But the whole point about this situation was that people were worried about systematic discrimination in the South, and they were willing to do whatever they could to eliminate it, and they knew that this was pervasive in both public and private areas. And in fact, I think most of them sense that one of the reasons why it was so pervasive in private areas is that public governments tended to favor firms that discriminate. And also there's a huge amount of private violence going on against anybody from the north who might try to come in and open up facilities with equal opportunity for black citizens. Uh, at the same time, there was an anxiety attack on the other side by people who were afraid that we would leap from the frying pan into the fire, eliminate discrimination in one direction, only to authorize what they called preferential treatment in the other direction, which would allow you to favor uh, minority candidates, black individuals over white individuals. So when they drafted this thing, it was clear that they had no desire to curry favor with the then fairly strong southern bloc of senators led by people like James Eastland. Uh, but they were very concerned to make sure that the Dirksen Republicans and the labor guys were essentially pleased with the way in which the statute was working. And so they crafted a compromise. And the compromise said that we're going to a curl blind and a sex blind standard in which discrimination against any person would be regarded as inappropriate. Well, that's the first part of it. And so what they then did is they drafted it in exactly that way and added other provisions which said that you uh, cannot require any kind of discrimination or even tolerate any kind of discrimination based on race. What happens is at the same time, people are worried about an incident involving a Motorola case in which some state court judge indicated that he would strike down various kinds of tests that were used if they had a disparate impact. And so they drafted a section in this 
Section 703H, which essentially said that uh, you're allowed to have any professional test administered unless it's intended, designed, or used in order to promote discrimination against any person. Uh, So they're trying to really govern themselves and protect themselves. Uh, The moment the statute is put into effect, all hell breaks loose in the United States because of the civil rights riots. And inside the EEOC and elsewhere in the Johnson administration, people were determined to say that it's effects that matter rather than intention to discriminate. And if you had a skewed test, that would be a terrible thing. So in 1971, the Duke Power case comes up, and Duke Power was a classic Southern kind of firm. Before 1955, it overtly discriminated on the grounds of race. In 1955, it tried to clean up its act and was using promotion by standardized tests equally for black and white um, employees. Uh, When this system is challenged, what happens is the standardized tests that were being used had a disparate impact. And what Justice Berger did is he said that the word used does not mean a test that you pick for the sole purpose of manipulating the results. It means any test which affects you in a disparate way, as virtually all texts did. And so he then said you have to exclude that test. And what happens, therefore, is after you get to this, every test, every standardized test, which typically show fairly pronounced differences between white and black applicants on them, is out of bounds unless you could show there was business necessity or job-related. And these terms are construed very, very narrowly. So in the aftermath of the Griggs decision, virtually every standardized test on the books was eliminated. And what you then had to do was to justify tests by showing that they were narrowly able to serve particular ends. This enormously expanded the scope of the Civil Rights Act and sent everything up an end. So once you have that situation in, uh, the next question is where do you go from there? And in 1989, there was a case called Ward's Cove in which it seemed as though um, Rehnquist was cutting back on the disparate impact test, whereupon there was a ferocious response in Congress. And in the 1991 Civil Rights Act, they got rid of the rather shaky statutory foundations for all of this. And what they put into its place was an explicit authorization in Section 703K, I think, in which they basically said the regime of using tests um, could only be allowed with disparate impact so long as it turns out that they were very narrowly job-related. So let's drill down a little bit, Richard, into this concept of disparate impact because mm-hmm. this is the dominant mode of analysis when we're talking about discrimination. Mm-hmm. And, and just to clarify, I mean the term itself is basically referring to the idea of whether a certain practice or a certain policy harms a certain group disproportionately. That, as you've already hinted at, it comes in for a lot of criticism, especially from the right Help us think through that criticism. Is it that the idea of disparate impact, in your judgment, is inherently flawed, or is this just something that is deployed far too promiscuously? Well, I think it's basically a large mistake. Um, I think the original conception was that what you tried to do is to figure out how it is that you keep all matters of race and, I dare say, sex out of the way in which the workplace is going to be organized. The moment you use this test, um, it turns out that every sensible evaluative technique that people have is no longer available. Um, There has never been any evidence which has shown that these generalized tests are bad predictors of what is going on. In fact, even after Griggs has been put forward, nobody came forward with evidence which said, you know, these very narrowly defined job-related tests do a wonderful job, the generalized tests do a bad job. Essentially, they both work about the same in one afternoon. So you put people through a lot of expense in trying 
to do these things. And when you tailor them so narrowly, strangely enough, they're less valuable than the generalized test because when employers hire workers, they not only want to know whether they could do the immediate task, they want to know what their prospects are for promotion, advancement, and so forth inside the firm. And a very narrowly related test will not give you that information. And so what you do, in effect, is that you get rid of this thing. Then the question is, what do you have to do in its place? And it turns out that you're going to have to rely much more on subjective kinds of um, information. And a lot of that is going to invite discrimination in one direction or another. Now, there's another movement here, which I should mention, in a very important case called Teal against Connecticut, in which what you had was not the situation in which tests were used by firms which had historic discrimination against minority groups. Rather, what you did is you had the state of Connecticut, which was trying to figure out how to promote people in one of its major offices. And what it said, in effect, is we're giving this test. And it turned out that there was a disparate impact. That is, whites did marginally better than did blacks by that 20% rule, which says if you get 20% more one race than the other race, the test is disparate. So what they did is they created an offset. And what the offset was is we will go deeper into the minority pool than we will into the white pool. And in fact, they chose about 22% of the minority applicants and about 13% of the white applicants, even though the black group had weaker scores. And Justice Brennan says, you can't do this. So there was a woman named Winnie Teal, and she didn't even make it in under the reduced standard, so he threw the whole test out. And what this does is it means you don't have information from tests. There's absolutely no evidence which says that when you're comparing two black persons as opposed to two white persons, uh, gaps in the test don't have predictive ability. They have it with respect to both groups. And once you get rid of the test, what it is is you can't make the kind of sensible judgment which takes this information, puts it into the place, and then in fact you lower the stores on one side, and if it turns out your black applicants do well, you keep it the practice. If there's a bit of a weakness, then you raise the standard. But Teal was a firm that was committed to affirmative action all the way up and down, unlike the history in the Griggs case. And my view is if you're running through a system in which it turns out that everybody is aching to try and get a much affirmative action program in place, something, by the way, which was absolutely um, out of bounds in 1964, you want to give them their head. So what was lost in the Teal case was the ability to have an affirmative action override to the disparate impact thing, which meant you could have used the text the test in a sensible way and had the affirmative action program. So I regard Brennan's opinion in this 1982 case as sort of the great tragedy of the modern civil rights laws because what it did is it made it impossible to get the information you need to run tests. And this is a modern tendency today in the way in which you try to combat discrimination is you give people less and less information on which to make decisions based on merit, at which point covertly all sorts of discrimination is much more likely to occur. I want to ask you about one of the newer pushes in employment discrimination law. It's it's an initiative that's often referred to as ban the box, and this is an effort to get employers, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes under law, to eliminate the question on employment applications as to whether someone has a criminal record. What's your response to that movement? Well, I, I think it's crazy. I mean, you have to take all of this stuff into account. And suppose what you're doing is you're trying to hire people to work in a daycare center with their small children. Maybe they're directly in charge of them. Maybe they're doing janitorial garden work. Do you really want to hire people who've been convicted child molesters under these circumstances? Uh, so I think, in effect, you want to take this into account. And then what's going to happen? Well, we've already seen if you have essentially a labor market in which there's a lot of excess – 
supply of labor, people are going to be pretty choosy on their requirements. But the moment the market starts to tighten up, as it's done recently, all of a sudden employers start thinking about groups that they have never thought about before, including for some positions, people with criminal records. But the key thing to understand is in some cases, this criminal record really matters and you want to let an employer find it out. In other cases, it doesn't. Well, the best sorting mechanism is not done by the state. The best sorting mechanism is actually done by the different employers. And sure enough, uh, as things start to change, those employers who have the least reason to worry about this are the ones who are going to be most likely to make those kinds of appointments. To what degree, if any, do the rules around employment discrimination need to be different in the public sector as opposed to the private sector? On this ground, I don't think there really is much of a difference because if you go back to the two cases that I've mentioned to you, Griggs was a case of a private public utility, the Duke Power Company, and Teal versus Connecticut was a case with respect to a state agency. The employment demands of both public and private firms are more or less the same. There are other things which, of course, differ quite. The power of public unions has always been stronger than the power of private unions. But in terms of trying to get information about whether an employee is a good fit for a particular job, it seems to me that both sides have very strong incentives to try to get the best sort of matches. Now, it's also probably the case, although this is very difficult, that in some public agencies, there'll be a very strong pressure to have affirmative action programs. In others, it will be much weaker. The same thing will be true in the private sector. And so to take an illustration, you take a company like Google or Facebook, and they hire a lot of high-tech technicians of one kind or another. And they have absolutely nothing to worry about from Griggs v. Duke Power, because when they start to hire people, what they do is they take a case that they have in the file, and they ask somebody to solve the problem that they've already faced, and then they see whether they can do it. Well, if you're giving them the very task that the job's required, it's going to be job-related, and the disparate impact is going to disappear. Uh, So the job tests really matter at the bottom much more than they matter at the top, and that's going to be true in both the public and private side. This is a classic case in which any government that's trying to do things by regulation has insufficient information about the huge heterogeneity of the firms that it regulates. While individual firms may not know about how the rest of the market works, but they know how they do work. So essentially the argument against standardized labor employment here is the same argument you always get from good Hayekians like myself, which is decentralized information in competitive markets gets you a better result than monolithic judgments coming in from the state operating at the top of a pyramid when it has no idea what's happening in the layers below. So to that point, the final question that I'll put to you, from a libertarian perspective, what legal safeguards should there be against employment discrimination? And if the answer is none, what do you say to people for whom that notion sends a shudder down the spine because they think that you're essentially giving license to intolerance? Well, I mean, first of all, the intermediate solution is the one that I've already mentioned. That's the one with Teal v. Connecticut. Um, You allow people to use the test so long as they engage in an affirmative action program. And, you know, it's a very different thing to use testing if you have a very liberal state trying to promote black participation in the labor market than if you have a system of historic discrimination against blacks, uh, which is what took place in the South before 1955, maybe before 1964. So the context really matters. My own view is the only time you start to really worry about discriminating against against workers is where the person on the opposite side has a a monopoly position. And this was actually a very important issue back in 1964 because the – 
most vicious and systematic practitioners of discrimination on race were often the labor unions. And what they did is they had lily white unions or if they had black members of their unions, they had a white control board and they systematically relegated their black employees to inferior positions. So there's a famous case in 1964 called Steel Against the Louisville and Nashville Railroad under the Railway Labor Act of 1926, which merged as a matter of law all black and white unions. The white members managed to get control over the thing and they relegated the black workers to inferior position. And Justice Jackson said, we're going to impose – it wasn't Jackson. I can't remember who it was now. Um, said The Supreme Court said there's going to be uh, essentially a duty of fair representation to treat minority workers equally with others. That never produced any really effective result because of the ability to stonewall. So in 1964, the monopoly position of unions was in fact a very, very serious issue. And what they did is they made the deal, which essentially still is the deal in place today. The union says you protect all incumbents. And what we will do is agree to play it straight going forward. Um, and what that means is well, if you get to the famous case on this Weber, which was a 1979 case, this was the deal. New workers, we're going to take 50% black and minority and 50% white because there's nobody who's a member of the union. All current workers essentially are going to be protected against being expelled. The unions were thrilled with that because their current membership was not going to rise up in rebellions. The employers were happy with this arrangement because they didn't want to upset the continuity in their workforce. The guys who got excluded were people like Brian Weber, who could not get a job because of the program. And Justice Brennan, um, who was on the court in 1971 and voted with Briggs, said, look, you want to run this kind of affirmative action program, it's perfectly okay with me uh, because you're not displacing anybody. And I think that the Civil Rights Act allows you to have discrimination if what you're trying to do is achieve greater job equality. The biggest defenders of that decision in practice were businesses. And indeed, when the issue arose in the educational context in Gruder back in 2003, uh, the strongest brief that persuaded Sandra Day O'Connor that she was ought to allow this was those submitted on behalf of the military and the business who says, we can't run ourselves unless we have some leeway on affirmative action. Basically, what you're doing is you're repealing the Civil Rights Act with respect to the kind of discrimination that people most want to engage with, which is why it is, even though conservatives realize that this is, shall we say, shows a lack of fidelity to the text, what they also understand is every business group is strongly in favor of this because easing up the anti-discrimination rules in favor of voluntary transactions, which was the explicit holding of Justice Brennan, is exactly what they wanted. So we're in kind of equilibrium today. We're still going to have these very tough tests, which I think are a mistake. You're going to have a lot of voluntary affirmative action. You're going to have all the high-powered jobs where the testing really doesn't matter one way or another. And it's been like that since 1989. And my guess, firms start to adopt to this, unions start to adapt to it. And that's the way it's going to continue. We will limp along with a somewhat inelegant compromise. If you ask me what I would do, I'm in favor of getting rid of all anti-discrimination law and competitive markets. I've said it for many years in my book. I don't think you have to fight that battle politically. If you could just overturn the Teal case, I think you would basically get rid of the major serious obstacles that now face a little bit of rationalization in labor markets. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter 
at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit Hoover.org.